0: Go ahead and have a seat. Well, by the time we're done with this, uh, short little series, relatively speaking, you may be cheering the fact that you don't have to listen anymore to me. This has been a very tedious, uh, kind of sermon, although it's been uh, enjoyable since it's out of my, my normal pattern of three decades. Um, but I really have, uh, enjoyed it. And we have two more, after today, we have two more aspects of the seven-message series that was put out by Explore God as far as the topics. And this morning we're talking about, is the Bible the Word of God? Obviously, Christians certainly believe it is, but with, I think, good reason, Um, that's questioned and questionable. And so we're going to talk about that this morning and look at the evidence for the fact that Christians do believe it is the word of God, and why we think so, why we say so, why we're confident, in fact, that it is. But again, um, as we talked about during the, the second week, I think, on is there a God, I can't prove it. I'm not going to be able to prove it. Nobody can prove there's God. Nobody can prove there isn't a God. And so today, I'm not going to give you proof that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative word of God, but I'll give you plenty of evidence and reason as to why... We believe it is. And if you're a Christian uh, thinking through, again, eyes of faith, uh, it is compelling and it's rock solid. So before I even begin, I want to give a lot of credit to Josh McDowell, who uh, was an attorney, uh, at least in law school as a youngster, and he was an atheist. And he was, uh, in a sense, uh, tired of hearing about the Bible and how it claimed to be the Word of God and all of that, and so he had this brilliant idea that, through the mind of an attorney an attorney, he would approach the Bible as an attorney would using rules of evidence you know into law and in courts, and to come out on the other side, proving his goal was to prove that the Bible, in fact, is not the Word of God, it's just another book. <laughs> In the process, he was converted to a personal faith in Jesus Christ and has had a powerful, powerful decades-long worldwide ministry with uh, InterVarsity, is it InterVarsity or Campus Crusade. Well, I think InterVarsity. And uh, as, an apologet, as an apologist, which is not someone who goes around saying they're sorry, but as somebody who is uh, apt at defending the faith. And so his two books, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, a verdict man, a verdict and more evidence that demands a verdict um, are out there and they are certainly um, worth perusing and looking at. So again, I said, you know, this morning what I can do is give you considerable evidence as to why we believe that the Bible is the word of God. So let's ask ourselves first what we might expect of a book that claims to be the word of God, if in fact it is. Well, among a lot of other things we're going to talk about, we would certainly expect that book to be unique. Well, what kinds of uh, uh, aspects of the Bible are unique from other books? Let me just rattle off a few. First of all, and, and this surprises a lot of people who aren't familiar you know, with the Bible or anything else, but the Bible actually isn't just one book. It's not the book, the Bible. The Bible is composed of 66 individual books, uh, broken down into the Old and the New Testaments, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament, according to our way of how those fell out. Um, they, they haven't always been that way through history. But again, that's another story and not all that interesting. It's been written, though, unlike all other books, or most other books, it's been written over a span of 1,500 years. And in that 1,500-year period, it crosses over 40 generations. And the 66 books of the Bible which compose all of it have been written by over 40 authors, each of whom came from all kinds of of varied walks of life. Just for a, a little smattering here of sample, Moses was a political leader and highly educated in the universities of Egypt. And then you go to the prophet Amos, who was a herdsman. He tended sheep. And then you think about Joshua, who was a military general. Or Solomon, who was king. And then we think back up or up into the New Testament about Luke, who was a physician. And think about that educational status and stature, even back in that day, for anybody compared to Peter, who was a fisherman. And then there's good old Matthew who, if he was around today, would be working for the Internal Revenue Service, possibly for Lois Lerner. Who knows? Formerly, I should say. And then there's Paul, who was a rabbi. So these books were written in, in over, over many centuries and they were written in all kinds of different localities, geographical areas of the world, from the wilderness to the willywags to big cities to small cities, into dungeons or exiled, as John was, to the island of Patmos where he wrote. And then, of course, Paul wrote not a few epistles while he was in prison and also aboard ship. It was written throughout different epochs of time. It was written in times of great peace. It was written in eras of a lot of warfare. It was written in times of national joy and worldwide despair when there were great famines over the land. It was written over three continents and in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And yet for all of that, There is one and only one unfolding story from Genesis to Revelation, and that single unified story in the Bible in 66 books by over 40 authors in all that time is singularly about the redemption of mankind. And it has been read by more people and published in more languages than any other book known to man it's been translated it's been retranslated it's been paraphrased more than any other book so the bible again is unique in many different ways another one of which is just its very survival through time because we have to think about the antiquity of The Bible, as it was being composed over those 400 years, which we began thousands of years ago, they didn't have books or printing presses or anything like that. And so the earliest documents were written on on, uh, papyrus, which is beaten out of reeds that grow in swamps. And then from there, there was kind of a bit of an advancement, if you could call it that, that, to parchment, which came from any number of animal skins. And that progressed, I guess, in a manner of speaking, to vellum, which was made distinctly from calf skin. And so again, you can imagine these kinds of materials don't exactly wear well through time at all. And so other materials were used, like ostraca, which is simply unglazed pottery, and then to clay tablets and even wax tablets, none of which, again, were very long lived. And so the original documents, every step of the way, had to be reproduced for centuries. Which meant by hand, until the printing press. And understand, though, that it wasn't just any Joe Blow that came along and decided to copy the Bible as it needed to be as things were wearing out or what have you. But rather by meticulously trained copyists who were were schooled in the, the details of how to proper copy... Co- copy properly in order not to make some of the more obvious kinds of blunders that are quite understandable. But all of that did not diminish its style or its correctness, which gives rise to questions about the reliability of the copies. So understand, we do not have any original manuscripts of the Bible. Everything that we have have been derived through the centuries and the millennia from copies. And so a very reasonable question is, well, how do we know then that we even have reliable copies so that what we call the Bible today is the Bible that was superintended by God? It's a great question. Well, a man by the name of John Lee, writing in the North American Review, stated that It seems rather strange that the text of Shakespeare, which has been in existence less than 250 years, should be far more uncertain and corrupt than that of the New Testament, which is over 2,000 years old. And so just, I'm just going to give you again, there's so many examples to these, and like I said, two rather big books have been written on this subject. So what you're going to get today is pretty much sound bites with some good answers, I trust, and again, that uh, will give you, uh, that will satiate your curiosity as to, yeah, are the Bibles we have today the Word of God, and are they reliable? So let's take just uh, one of the great works of antiquity, Homer's Iliad. I don't know about, you know, education today. The Iliad and the Odyssey uh, were books that we had to read when we were in, uh, I don't know if it was junior high or high school written by Homer. Well, the Iliad was written about 900 B.C., 900 years before Christ. And there are 643 copies with the earliest manuscript of the Iliad dating to 400 B.C., meaning that the earliest manuscript to the original manuscript of the Iliad, there's a 500-year period. So keep that in mind, 643 copies and 500 years is the closest copy to the original time of writing. Now let's think about the New Testament. The New Testament, which was written over a time period of about 40 A.D. to 100 A.D., the earliest copies that we have, which includes fragments and parts of books and and all of that, date to about 125 A.D., which means the earliest manuscripts coming to us are as close as 20 to 25 years to the original manuscripts and actually the even the occurrences of the things that were going on. And how many copies of the New Testament do we have? 24,000. Now, here's the point, or at least I'm getting there quoting again from, uh, actually focus on the family. They wrote, 1 Corinthians, for instance, dates from the 50s, only 20 years or so after the death and the resurrection of Christ. And this is important because 1 Corinthians chapter 15 contains key elements about the resurrection and the gospel message, emphasizing the importance of the resurrection and claiming that more than 500 people had seen Christ people who would still have been alive because of the closeness of the manuscripts of the writings would still have been alive at the time of the writing of first Corinthians, meaning that there would have been people alive who could have taken exception to what was written and said, no, no, that's not what happened. No, it didn't happen that way. No, that never happened. And all those kinds of considerations that we all take together to see are the root copies that we have, uh, legitimate and are they reliable? Well taken all together, noted professor, lawyer, and theologian John Warwick Montgomery noted, to be skeptical of the resultant texts of the New Text Testament is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. Meaning if you are going to accept as people do the Iliad as being a good representation, if not not you know just a, a key representation of the Iliad, even though there 's only six hundred and forty three pieces of it dating only as close as five hundred years from the actual writing, then if we 're going to dismiss the Bible um, by the stats that I just gave you, then you have to dismiss all of the classics of antiquity because nothing comes even close. In fact, compared to other ancient writings, the Bible has manuscript evidence more than uh, many times more than 10 of any of the pieces of classical literature combined. There's been a systematic effort as we know another uniqueness of the Bible to destroy the Bible over history, it came by, by actually burning the Bible, or by banning it, or outlawing it, and in the now infamous words of the uh, French historian and revolutionary philosopher, Voltaire, he made the famous statement in the early 1700s, he was a rabbit atheist, that in 100 years, Christianity would be swept away out of existence and out of history. Norman Geisler, uh, one of the profs uh, at Trinity before I was there was a known apologist. He noted that within 50 years of Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society, the irony of God, used Voltaire's own printing press and his house to print and stack Bibles for distribution around the globe. Okay. So alright, this is, you know, these are just kind of, like I said, little tidbits here and there. Uh, I trust they're, I hope they're interesting. But all this does is demonstrate that the Bible is unique as we would expect the Word of God to be. So still, the grand issue that's sitting before us this morning is whether the Bible is the Word of God and is reliable. Well, the adherence of many other religions make similar claims about their holy books. And perhaps one of the better known, and I'm going to use it just as an example because it's probably the, the probably maybe the best known to most people in here, is the Book of Mormon. Quoting, and everything I'm going to say from here on out concerning Mormonism are from primary documents, meaning from uh, articles, books, uh, theologies written by Mormons for Mormons. So this isn't my opinion or anybody else. Quoting, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is what the Mormons are called, we believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. God has so declared it, so have its writers, so have its witnesses, and so do all those who have read it and received a personal revelation from God to its truthfulness. All right, so what? Or where is the evidence that would support any claim by any religion concerning their holy books? Which, again, certainly includes Christianity. Mormons profess to be Christians. If you ever tried to engage them on one of their neighborhood walkbys, you if you got far enough with them or allowed them and identified yourself as a Christian, they're very eager to let you know that they too are Christians as well. But what I find to be a good conversation ender with them is to ask them why, if you guys are Christians just like I am, why are you trying so hard to convert me to Mormonism? I mean, if we already believe the same things about the God of scriptures and the way of salvation, why are you wasting your time on me? And like I said, that usually ends it. Now, if I begin to engage someone in a conversation about Christianity, just thinking about the the Mormons trying to convert me to Christianity, because after all, they're Christians too, when I'm talking to somebody about the Lord, not knowing much about them or anything about their faith, and I come to find out in my talking to them that they, in fact, have a personal faith in Jesus Christ, I either end the conversation... Or at least certainly switch gears from a focus being on converting them, they're already converted, so why bother, to just being a brother of encouragement and then moving along. But you see, if Mormons' beliefs have no resemblance to the teachings of the Bible, and they don't, as you're going to hear, then one or both of those two holy books, the Book of Mormon or the Bible, One or both of those may be wrong, but they surely cannot both be right. So, let's take a look. God, according to the Book of Mormon, that again they claim is the word of God, says this from their articles of faith. We believe in God the Eternal Father and His Son Jesus Christ and in the Holy Ghost. Hey, that sounds okay, right? We could say the same thing. This cannot be construed to mean that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are one in substance and person. There are three gods from Mormon doctrine, page 670. God is an organized being just as we are now in the flesh. He is a progressive being and possesses the capacity of, internal, of eternal increase, perhaps once a child and mortals like ourselves. It's getting a little crazy The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. From Doctrines and Covenants, page 130. Every man who reigns in celestial glory is a God to his dominions. From morals and dogma. The doctrine of a plurality of gods is prominent in the Bible. That's news to me. The heads of the gods appointed our God for us. According to the Book of Mormon, Jesus is, quoting, among the spirit children of Elohim, the firstborn was and is Jehovah, Jesus Christ, to whom all others are juniors. By obedience and devotion, he, Jesus, attained to the pinnacle of intelligence, which ranked him as a God, even in his preexistent state. So, in summation, in the book If the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, then the Bible cannot be. And conversely, if the Bible is the Word of God, the Book of Mormon cannot be. Because they contradict one another at basically every major point of faith. And if God is rational and he is intelligent and unchanging, his Word cannot contradict itself. So back to the Bible... Is it the Word of God? First, I want to deal with what I'm going to call, actually what Josh McDowell calls, internal evidence. Meaning, does the Bible itself claim to be the Word of God? Remember what I said about the Book of Mormon. Mormons say, we believe it to be the Word of God. And in my studies, and I could have missed something, obviously, but I do not find that the Book of Mormon claims to be the Word of God itself. The Bible, on the other hand, does in numerous ways. The most probably verse that comes to mind right away is Second Timothy 3.16. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And if there has been a repeated question to me over the years about this issue, it pertains to the means of inspiration. In other words, what does that even mean that the Bible is inspired by God? Well, the word that we translate "inspired" is "neustis." In the, uh, in the original, which means literally thea, uh, from theos, which is God, and neustis, from which we get our word pneumonia and pneumon and all of that, meaning breathe. So literally, inspired, the translation means God breathed. The most common misunderstanding about inspiration is some kind of a, a, a notion of God dictating to the individual authors. Moses, take a letter. Okay, uh, hey Rashid, hey Rashid, it's in the beginnings, Genesis. If inspiration means God dictated to the writers, we would see only one personality, one style, from Genesis to Revelation, which is not at all what we see. When you read the book of Acts, boy, got a little itch here. Stop it. When you read Acts, for example, if you were schooled sufficiently in the Koine Greek, and you read the Gospel of John in the original language, just for example, as we did in seminary, and you'll hear why in just a second, you would see that the Gospel of John was written at basically an elementary school level of Greek, a very um, elementary kind of form of Greek, and which is why they have students new to Greek spend time in the book of John reading it and going through it because it's the easiest one to work through when you don't have a large knowledge base of the language. But now if you skip from the Gospel of John and you go to the book of Acts... And you start reading it, all of a sudden there's whoa, you know, even to the new Greek student, but man, I don't know. There's there's all these words in here that I've never heard of. There's a syntax or a structure of the sentences that's confusing to me and everything. That's because the Book of Acts, as we know, was written by Luke, who was a physician, whole different level of education. So all I'm saying here is that you see the stylistic changes throughout the centuries of the various writers because the writers were not like all of a sudden they'd become robotic and start penning the words down as God was dictating it to them. But rather they were allowed to express themselves from their own level of education and vocabulary and style and all of that, yet with God's precise oversee of all that was going on. The Apostle Paul, it's a mystery as to who wrote the book of Hebrews, at least according to, I'd say, a good portion of individuals, myself included. The Apostle Paul is often given credit for writing the book of Hebrews. But again, when you read all of the epistles that Paul wrote, and then you read the book of Hebrews in the original language, you go, ah, yeah, I'm not seeing Paul at all being the author of this. And so again, All of this just completely mitigates the fact that, no, God did not dictate his thoughts to humans. So then, that begs the question, what is the interplay between God and the various writers through the centuries? Because, as I said, there is definitely one continuous theme from beginning to end, and as I said and contend, no contradiction. Well, the Bible tells us in 2 Peter, beginning in chapter 1, verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In this very short pericope, Peter informs all that what he was writing and is about to continue writing is that the supreme importance of Jesus was not concocted out of His imagination. It wasn't woven together from threads of others' imaginations, but rather He was writing as an eyewitness to all that He writes about. Peter goes on to explain further in 2nd Peter. Again, just repeating what I just said, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory... This is what they heard. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This is referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Again, Peter is writing from his experience firsthand on the Mount of Transfiguration with James and John when Jesus was transfigured and God the Father is having conversation audible to them with Jesus. And Peter is giving us his up-close-and-personal account of what happened, of what they saw And what they heard, and what Peter says is, and everything only confirmed the prophetic words, meaning referring to the Old Testament prophecies that had been foretold. Nothing in the Bible was left open to Peter's conjecture. Nothing was left to Peter's or anybody else's opinion of what this was all about. And he wants us to know that as well. Writing in chapter 1, verse 20, he says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. So what is the nature of God's inspired text to mankind? What we see is God supervising the writing of the Bible supernaturally, making sure that nobody wrote something down that God didn't want written down, and making sure that nothing was omitted that God wanted recorded but each writer was permitted to pen their own words with their own intellect and style and experience, which again is why we see differences in style and all of that from writer to writer. This is called, for whatever it's worth, plenary inspiration. So, when God incarnate comes on the scene, Jesus, Jesus is now born of Mary, and he's growing... And all that that means, the Old Testament was the Bible. The New Testament is just starting to occur and it's not even being recorded yet. So the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. And Jesus, God incarnate, used it, quoted it, relied on it, showing it to be the authoritative word of God. When Jesus would answer questions, he would frequently cite scripture. When he was making points in answer to questions specifically about who he was, he quoted scriptures that pointed to who he was as an independent authority. And when Jesus God Almighty, as we know, went out to the wilderness now and subjected himself to the temptations by Satan himself. Three temptations and three times Jesus, God incarnate, shot back at Satan to each one of the three temptations with, it is written. And then he cites, And what is he citing? In each case, he is citing Deuteronomy 8.3, Deuteronomy 6.16, and Deuteronomy 6.13. Meaning, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, testifies to the authority and the longevity of the Old Testament Bible. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Now understand, in the Hebrew mind, the Old Testament was, was parceled into three segments, if you will, the law, the prophets, and a group called just the writings. And Jesus says, look, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, Matthew five seventeen, but to fulfill, for truly I say to you, Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. But let's note, we don't simply believe the Bible to be the word of God just because it says it is. There are other objective evidences for it being the word of God. Let's go into those. We talked about internal evidence. Now let's look at what's called external evidence. Before the Enlightenment, which was a period of history beginning in the very late 1600s through the 1700s, before that epoch of history began dousing the light of the Word, science-minded Christians, which was almost to the person, Science-minded Christians had such confidence in the Bible as the Word of God that they actually embarked on discoveries and explorations because of what they had read in the Bible. Just a couple of examples. And by the way, I'll mention one before I forget. If you are homeschooling and you have any desire, I can send you a great link that I I found myself, stumbled onto it, showing just this list of all these great scientists, many names that, that... We would know in previous times of education, again, I don't even know if they're mentioned much anymore, but you would know the names, and every one of them has their own stories about how they happened to discover or invent or do what they did, and it all goes back to the scriptures. Just one example from the book of Job, chapter 28. It says, for he looks to the ends of the earth, and he sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind. W-E-I-G-H-T. Pretty obscure. And yet, this just dawned on the Italian physicist and mathematician Evangelista Torricelli, who, as I know you all know, invented the right barometer. And he discovered that air has weight. And to this day, the unit of measure for barometric pressure is in Tors, named after Torricelli. At one time, this is in the uh, middle 1800s, Commodore Matthew Morey was very sick, and he was quite literally on his deathbed, and he called one of his daughters to him and asked them to read him the Bible. And they came and just coincidentally, they, she, his daughter happened to pick Psalm chapter 8. And in Psalm chapter 8, verse 8, now this is ripped out of context. The whole context is about, about giving praise to the creator of the universe and all these little sound bites about all the things that he's created and that they will shout praise to the Lord and all of that. And it says, whatsoever walketh through the paths of the sea. Now, this is just a phrase of one verse from Psalm 8. And he couldn't get this out of his mind. They shall walk the paths of the sea. They shall walk the paths of the sea. And he kept repeating this to himself until he finally said, if God says there's a path through the sea, then there is. And if I ever get off of my deathbed and get healthy again, I'm going to find it. Well, he did. He began his deep-sea soundings as soon as he was strong enough, and he found two ridges extending from New York to England. And with one ridge, the current went to England, and with another ridge, the current came from England. And he revolutionized sea travel, making it much more efficient by that little discovery. In fact, he was nicknamed Pathfinder of the seas, and the father of modern oceanography and naval meteorology. Who knew that the second law of thermodynamics would be revealed in Psalm 102? We read in 102, 25, 26, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish but you endure. All of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be changed. And then coming up into the the book of Romans, we read in chapter 821 that creation will be set free from decay and would share in the glorious freedom of his children. The second law of thermodynamics is the law of entropy. Meaning that things do not go from lesser organization to greater organization, but from greater organization to lesser organization. Meaning, in the universe, things are made to break down. From greater to lesser, things rot, things break, things just, just, just disappear into the air. It's the second law of thermodynamics and there it is telling us that the world and all of it is winding down and it is all going to come to an end. Back in the days, theology was called the queen of the sciences and science was called its Handmade, meaning anything emanating out of science was subject first to the inspired, infallible, and authoritative word of God. How things have changed. The word of God. Let's talk about the nature of the miraculous. Think about fulfilled prophecy. There are over 400 prophecies in the Bible 32 are quite specific pertaining to the Messiah and to Jesus, and they have been fulfilled in detail. Over 400, 32 specifically about Jesus, and Dr. Peter Stoner, himself a mathematician, decided to do a calculation and figure out the coincidence of 32 future tellings about something coming to pass by coincidence. He said, no, let's just take eight. What are the odds of eight prophecies about Jesus being fulfilled? Well, it comes out to be one in one times 10 to the 17th power. That's one with 17 zeros behind it. Now, I don't know about you, I can't relate to a number that big, So let me use another cute little story that I heard many, many years ago that really stuck with me, which is how you can tell it made a difference. So take the state of Texas, not the smallest state, now cover the entire state of Texas with silver dollars. Oh, not just one coin deep, two feet deep. And now take a blind man, excuse me, seeing impaired, and say, have at it, you can go into the state of Texas anywhere you want and reach down and grab one coin that is marked. The odds of that happening is that number. That's the odds of only eight prophecies of Jesus coming to pass. It's fair to say that is an impossibility. What about all those nasty contradictions in the Bible? High school students, junior high students, collegians, listen up. There has never been an archaeological discovery before or up to date that has ever contradicted the Bible's account of anything. And by the way, I just remember just uh fairly recently, like within the last year I think. I stumbled across something on Netflix or what have you. And they have they think they believe with compelling evidence they have even found the location of the of where Sodom and Gomorrah would have been where brimstone from heaven rained down sulfur residue burned rock Outcroppings in the area where the Bible would have said Sodom Gomorrah was at. Just one little example that I just remembered. Nelson Gluck, a Jewish archaeologist, said no archaeological discovery has ever controverted the Bible. Miller Burroughs of Yale said archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of scripture. And I myself, for quite a few years, subscribed to Biblical Archaeology Review. Which is called that because they were doing archaeology in the Bible lands. Not a Christian organization by any stretch. In fact, for the most part, all very, if they were, uh, had theological leanings at all, they were extremely liberal, if not antagonistic. They were there as scientists, not as people of faith. And there has never been, there never was an article in there that I ever read. It's a very scholarly kind of magazine. Nothing has ever been that controverted the scriptures. And in fact, they would use the Bible as a reference tool to know where to begin doing certain excavations. Let's talk about the so-called errors in the time that we have left. How about discrepancy between accounts? Again, there, there's so many of these, but I, we, there's no way we could do all this. Let me just give you one. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke is where Jesus is sitting around with the disciples and they're having a little discussion about who do people, you know, thinking, oh, well, some say this, Lord, and some say that, Lord, this is who you are and all that. And Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? Gospel writer Matthew In 16.16 says, uh, Peter records Peter saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The exact same scenario, but by gospel recorder, Mark has Peter saying, you are the Christ. And in Luke 9.20, Peter says, the Christ of God. Now, there are teachers who will say, you see, the Bible can't even get one simple little story right. But excuse me, we have to be mindful of Ipsissima verba and absissima vox. You say that sounds funny. You would say it absissima verba and absissima vox, but in Latin V's are W's. Instead of vini viti vici, it's actually weenie weedy weeky. I, I gotta stick with vidi vidi vici, I just, I can't, you know, I came, I saw, I conquered. Anyway, can't get off on that. So, what does ipsissima verba means, Verba. It means the literal words. Ipsissima vox, wax, <laughs> means the general sense or the literal voice. The scriptures as recorded in this particular incident is a simple declaration or example of a werba," the voice. And furthermore, none of the accounts in any way, shape, or form contradict each other. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, has more information than Peter saying you are the Christ. Doesn't mean he didn't say it. That's all that Mark chose to write down. And God was okay with that. And Peter, you are the Christ. They all said the same thing. But because some said more than others, that's not a contradiction or an error. It's a difference in what is recorded there. Was it the actual voice of what was said or the actual uh, meaning of uh, 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 words? Now let's get to the, one of the more dicier ones. Copyist errors. As you would think, any document that's been copied by hand up until the printing press, even with all the precautions that were t- t- taken in the uh, process of copying the Bible, there were still errors made to be sure. They can be demonstrated today, even in our Bibles. So we need to talk about this. Let me give you an example. First 1 Samuel 17.51 says, then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Okay? David killed Goliath. But now let's look at 2 Samuel twenty-one nineteen. There was war with the Philistines again at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Yarei Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath, the Gittite the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Ah, here you are sitting in your English class or your literature class or your history class or your world religions class, and in walks Professor Kill Your (laughs) Faith. And boy, doesn't he love this to shred you naive little Christians out there. You with your Bible and the Word of God and doesn't contradict itself. Well, what about this? Huh? That's a good one. You know what? We don't have time. No, I'm kidding. Okay, we don't, but we're, that's all right. We're going to go. Well, enter Doctor Gleason Archer, another professor who was at Trinity. I don't pull it. These guys are—they're just, you know, uh, yeah. Doctor Archer, who was up there in years when I was there, he's no longer on this earth, he had the yearly goal of learning a new and obscure language. And for 32 years, last I knew, and this was when I was still in seminary, he had a working knowledge of 32 different languages. He was one of those guys, remember Indiana Jones, right? The very first one. And they contact, the, you, know, was, you know, he's an expert in uh, whatever. Dr. Archer is a guy that the government would come to or archaeologists would come to when they find some obscure writing, they have no idea what it is, and they bring it to him. And he go, oh, yeah, that's my brother. <laughs> whatever. Okay? Not your normal intellect. I purposely avoided taking anything from him because he had a reputation for being brutal. And I said, I don't need brutal this time around. Anyway he demonstrates with some very understandable parsing and analysis of the Hebrew texts that are involved here. And he shows very compellingly how the copyist had misplaced the direct object in the Hebrew, how he got another letter, a single letter wrong, which now understand the copyists are making copies of something because it's on its last legs, And so in the Hebrew, if you can imagine, and and I I almost was going to put a slide above this, but a little that looks like an apostrophe can change a word entirely. And you can imagine how easily that could have, you know, you could drop a piece of jelly from your bagel on it, and and you'd never know, even know it was there. And so the copyist comes along, and he's doing this, and he thinks he's got it down precise, and all of that. So there was a single letter missing, And then he also, when he retranslated or copied, he put one word in the wrong place in the sequence. And that results in the exact corruption of the two texts or the differentiation there. So you say, well, still, okay, how do you know which one is the correct one? I'm glad you asked that. Because you see, God, again, in his wisdom, um, the corruption is perfectly traceable. Uh, like I said, in the original wording, sorry, Jan, I kind of missed that cue. It is correctly preserved in first chronicles twenty verse five where again it is clearly revealed that David was the one who in fact killed Goliath. There is no corruption of any text in the scriptures that undermines any major or even any minor doctrinal issues. The vast majority of copyist errors, like I say, are readily explainable. And if you're reading the old Testament, you might even see a little asterisk or a side note where you're reading about certain numbers. And in one place you might read 40,000 troops went out with David. And in another verse, it'll say 20,000 troops went out with David about the same occurrence. Well, which one is it? So we're talking about the difference K okay, of one numeral. And again, explained through copyist errors. And that, again, is usually reiterated somewhere else so that you know which was, in fact, the correct one. So are the the copies that we have before us reliable? Absolutely. More so than anything else known to mankind. All right, um... I think I'm going to end there. The only thing I had left to do was really how the books of the Bible that we have got into the Bible, so to speak, which is a bad way of wording that. Um, probably not the most uh, burning issue to people, one of curiosity, I know, because I've been asked that a lot of times. Um, all that is to say, and, and understand that in the EFCA's statement of faith and many other denominations who believe in inerrancy, they will say, "We believe that the Bible is inerrant in the autographs, the autographs meaning the original documents, which we don't have. OK? So then, again, we could go around the circle and say, "Well then, how do you know? There was a great discovery that happened in the, I'm going to say, the '40s, might have been the '50s at Qumran. They okay. made worldwide news in the day, some shepherd boy or, or whatever I think uh, wandered into a cave and he found some scrolls and that of course spawned this exploration of the caves at Qumran and they found all kinds of scrolls, hundreds and hundreds, I think, and many of them with major portions of the, you know, the book of Isaiah and other books of the Old Testament. And this was such a huge find because now these were some of the oldest, oldest manuscript- copies of the the original manuscripts, which I said went long out of existence. They were some of the earliest known to man. And now they could take these and again, they could go, well, let's see how close, you know, our our, our translations of Isaiah are from what we had at the time as being the earliest manuscripts. And again, boom, 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 boom reliable so at the end of the day I said I can't prove it but I have given you reason to believe that the Bible is the inspired infallible and authoritative word of God in all things pertaining to life and godliness you can stake very literally your life on it Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, again, I have opened the fire hydrant of information and the people are dripping. <laughs> I pray, oh Lord, by your Holy Spirit, you would remove doubt, you would fortify Faith. And in the words of Michael Card, it is time to give up one's ponderings and fall down on your knees. Father in heaven, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.